Yeah, I've heard that somewhere before. And the last time in chapter 19, we covered uh, King Saul really given another chance to turn to God. And unfortunately, in this chapter, we see that uh, he's totally spurned God. So when we read verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So what's changed here between the two chapters? And we know chapter delineations came later. But in chapter 19, to refresh your memory, we left off with King Saul filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesying, taking off his kingly garments, prostrate on the ground before the Lord. And even though Saul was such a a willful, stubborn man, God still gave him another opportunity to not only serve him, but to see what it was like to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And from this point on, unfortunately, it's the point of no return because King Saul could only think of his own personal desires and aspirations, and that's just completely blinded him from any spiritual life that he had left. And it's so sad that some can be so stubborn. God can give them so many opportunities. He can show them so many things. He can, it's just amazing. Uh, And I tell you what, even as an, an unbeliever, I saw the workings of God. And I just knew eventually he was going to lay a hold of me, and he did. But uh, as, as much as I try to go my own way, and I try to just one more chance, and then if it doesn't work, Lord, I'll serve you, just all these crazy machinations. Uh, but, you know, I could see what God was doing, and it was powerful. And here I am. <laughs> Chapter 20, David is desperate now. He's becoming a fugitive, and he's not really sure why. He's going to be hunted like an animal. And he hopes to get some answers from uh, not only the king's son, but his best friend, Jonathan. And these are the times where our faith will really be stretched. Especially, maybe not all of us have experienced this, but sometimes we'll experience maybe near-death experiences. And that will really put our faith to the test. And we see that's happening with David. Now, God said that David would be king. But sometimes extreme stress can cause us to temporarily forget about the promises of God. But God still fulfilled those promises in David's life. Two, so Jonathan said to him, by no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Now, Jonathan, A, may be overconfident in his relationship with his father. Or two, he may be in denial about how bad his father really is. He's like probably in his mind thinking, I don't want to believe this. This can't be. This is my father, and this is my best friend who's going to be anointed. Why do I have to choose between the two? 
and really get to see the great character of Jonathan, one of those many behind-the-scenes people in the Scripture that God did wonderful works through. He didn't get the kingdom. He didn't get the kingship. But he, nonetheless, he was a, an, ex, an exceptional man. However, he re- reassures his friend David that he won't die. Now, David is, is very concerned, and he says, Listen, I know he's your father, but he knows the relationship that you and I have, and he's going to hide it from you. And he says, Truly, as the Lord lives, there is but a step between me and death. And I would say, yes and no. Yes, true, the king was after him, but no, because God promised him something, and God wasn't going to fail in that promise. I think sometimes if we can, we can take any of these applications, we can look at our own lives and see how we behave and how we react to certain things in times of extreme stress. And I think sometimes we know the promises of God, but right in front of us is an incredible dilemma, is turmoil, is tragedy. And in our minds we say, well, how are the two going to play out? Yes, I want to believe, I want to trust, but all I see is chaos in front of me. So that's usually the point where we get in trouble. How's it going to flesh out? How's it going to play itself out? And this is where David is right now. So David has a plan, and Jonathan is willing to do anything to help his friend. Again, we spoke about loyalty in 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan was not, as we understand, a fair-weather friend. Everybody understand what a fair-weather friend is? You know, only a friend in good times. When things get rough, the friend is gone. Now, I'm going to bait you a little bit. How many of you have had fair-weather friends? If you've lived long enough, you've had friends like that. When the going gets tough, they get going. They're out of there. But then my question is, if we've lived long enough, how many of us at times have been fair-weather friends? I'm going to talk about a few times looking in the mirror. And I think this is one of those times where we need to do that. I can tell you that in my life, I've been a fair-weather friend. I'm not proud of it. Uh, It was immature of me, uh, and I hope that as I've grown, in the Lord at least, that I've not been like that. But we sometimes have to look in the mirror. Are we fair-weather friends? Have we been? Are we now in a particular situation? Then the question is, how far would we go to stick with a friend if they were right, if they were on the side of righteousness, but siding with them could cause us problems? Political problems, financial problems, social problems, all right, things get difficult. This starts to heat up, doesn't it? Jonathan may not have completely bought into David's concerns or fears. However, Jonathan was such a good friend, he was looking to see how everything was going to play out, and he was willing to be a part of that. Yes, he protested at first, but then he goes along with David's plan. Now, this was a difficult time for David. You really have to put yourself in his position. Could you imagine if the president said tomorrow, John, I'm after you. I'm going to send my CIA after you, the FBI, the military. I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to kill you. Wow, that's a little scary. He's got the power to do all those things. So if we put ourselves in that situation, not comfortable, is it? You know, we can read the Bible and say, oh, what's the matter with these people in the Old Testament? I wouldn't have done that. Well, sometimes when that happens to us, we can behave like this at times. It's not, it's not a good time. But I see God putting a protector in David's life in the person of Jonathan. And we can all look back at times and see that when we've been at our worst or our lowest of lows, sometimes God has provided a guardian in, in the form of a person, someone to help us up, to lift us up, to refresh us, to bounce things off of. And that's important. And hopefully we've been that type of person to others as well. 
when they go through hard times. Psalm 23, 4 attested to David, quote, The yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this was a psalm attributed to David later in his life, and really it's a retrospective look. And what's really neat about this particular portion in the psalms is David looks back to a time where things were really rough. And then he, he realizes, he has the retrospective outlook to say, you know what, God was with me. And he likens God to a shepherd. So a really powerful uh, psalm, Psalm 23. But David's plan, again, is to put forth this litmus test, so to speak, uh, for, to see how King Saul reacts to Jonathan when he speaks about David not being there. And that's where we're going with this. Verse 8. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? So this could be, again, maybe a little insulting, maybe pushing the envelope a little bit. Uh, Jonathan is assuring David, okay, but David still wants him to reassure him more. Um, David reminds Jonathan of this loyalty agreement that they had. Uh, as God is their witness. And he goes on, kill me yourself. Spare me the agony. Get it over with already. Have you ever been through such a trial, such a difficulty that you're like, oh, I, I just wish the Lord would take me. You know, I mean, I've heard that from so many people. And David's literally being hunted. And he's like, just spare me the agony. Jonathan, if I'm evil, kill me yourself. I don't want to be caught and trapped like an animal and brought to the king so he can have his way with me. Just take my life. And this certainly puts tension on a relationship when somebody questions your loyalty. There's a lot about friendship today that we're going to cover tonight. Uh, Really a lot that we can look at, and again, we can look in the mirror and see where we fit in as the person who needs help or as the person who should be helpful to others. But what it shows is this true friendship, as true as it was, still had its flaws, didn't it? Verse 9. And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Again, John reassures him, maybe bristles a little bit at the constant um, you know, questioning or, or concern. Number one, you're not going to be killed, and if I knew, wouldn't I tell you? And we've been friends for a while, of course I would. Ten. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong portion, Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out or searched out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Gee, I got to stop there for a second. Yeah, Jonathan is admitting the Lord was always good to dad. Even though King Saul is in an awful spiritual state, God gave him everything to be successful. And not just successful in the material world, but spiritually successful. And again, the king spurned it. So Jonathan is reflecting on better days when, um, you know, God gave my dad every possible ability. And I know 
that he loves you, David. He's going to give you also every possible protection and ability. 14, and if you shall not only, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And we saw that in the beginning of 1 Samuel 18 as well. So Jonathan and David, they make yet another covenant, another agreement. Now, this is interesting because it's a verbal agreement. And we live in a world today that if you make a verbal agreement, um, there are always those out there that are looking to trick you. They're looking to take your money from you. They're looking to say, hey, you didn't put it in writing. You didn't sign your name. I didn't certainly, I don't see my signature anywhere on that paper. And this is unfortunately the world we live in. And it's a sad, uh, a sad place to live. But the truth is that when, we, when society gets to the point where we have to have attorneys every time we make an agreement, we're in a bad place. It's a society of dishonesty. However, it wasn't the same. It wasn't that way with Jonathan and David. Right? God is my witness. That's all they had to say. I will protect you. Well, I'll look out for you. And when I become king, I'll make sure that your house is taken care of as God is my... That's all they had to say. Because they feared God. Today, you'll hear some say, well, I swear to God, and they'll say it over and over again. Because usually, it means that they, their word doesn't mean much. So they have to try to convince you with passionate uh, calling, invoking God's name. Right? So that, that's a rough thing right there. Jonathan showed David grace, though, I would see here. Uh, he could have said, enough, David. You keep pressing me. Listen, I'm risking my relationship with my father. I'm risking the throne, and I'm risking, risking my life, David. And you're not being very appreciative. But he didn't do that. He continued to show him grace. And there may come a point in time where we have a friendship, and we're friends with somebody, and there's really no benefit to us in that friendship. And some of us may have cut off those friendships because we felt there was no benefit to us. However, again, look in the mirror, because there may become a time where we have nothing to offer to someone else as a friend, and we're desperately hoping that someone is is a friend like Jonathan was. So see, everything works. It's like reflexive. Everything works both ways. Sometimes you're on top. Sometimes you're on the bottom. And when you're on the bottom, it's nice to know that there's some friends there willing to help you out and refresh you at the very least and encourage you. So, Jonathan also returns with David in this covenant, and Jonathan asks for a few things. This is amazing. David is on the run. He thinks that any moment his life could be taken. He's desperate for Jonathan to help him and give him information and protect him. And Jonathan is saying, when you become the king, um, can you look out for my family? Can you look out for me? You know what's amazing here? Jonathan is showing more faith than David is. David's terrified. And again, I'm not... I'm not one of those people to point fingers. I don't know what I would do in this situation. But I'm just saying that you've got a a present king, King Saul, who's out of his mind. He's demonically inspired. You've got a future king who's running for his life, thinking he's going to die any day. Who's running the kingdom? Jonathan was really the glue that held the kingdom together in this very precarious time. Isn't that amazing? You ever think about that when you read this? It's pretty impressive. 18. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, 
and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone easel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a target. And there I will send the lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are behind you. Go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter for which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. I think you, you get the point um, at this far into the study that I really like Jonathan. I mean, everybody gets that. Okay, good. <laughs> so this is what's, what's going on here. This is this plan. And it's very simple. Um, David's hiding in the, in the field. He's hiding somewhere where uh, the lad, the caddy, so to speak, can't see him. Is the arrow caddy. And Jonathan's going to pretend he's going to do an archery. He's shooting at this target. And he purposely will shoot the arrows on one side. And if it's just on the side, he'll tell the lad, hey, they're on the side. That means to David, who's listening, you're safe. But then if he shoots, well, oh, I missed him. I shot some, shoot him over the target. He says to the lad, they're way beyond you. David gets the picture. Oh, this isn't good. And if he hears that, I'm sure his heart would sink. And, and he does hear that, unfortunately. 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. It's amazing. The king sat. He's the king. He's the man. Right? He can command anyone to take anyone's life, but he's sitting against the wall. He's paranoid. It's, it's amazing. You look at any of these dictators, um, Stalin, Hitler, these godless men who had ultimate power, ruled by fear. They were paranoid men. Uh, there's something about when you, when you depart from the Lord and you uh, are maddened, you, know, you, just, you live a very miserable life. So this is where Saul is, maybe not, not knowing who's taken David's side, who may try to assassinate him. So you look at little things in the scripture and they reveal a lot. 26, nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. 
So here's the dinner discussion, talking about getting heartburn, you know. Hey, pass the potatoes and pass the Prilosec while you're at it. You know, bring that over here. Heartburn medication. <laughs> so the first day at dinner, King Saul, you know, thinks, okay, I don't see David. He notices that the seat is empty. Remember, David commanded many of the armies. So he was a, a military dignity that should have been seating, seated at the royal court while this was going on. But this was a spiritual celebration. It was a, a new moon feast. And if you were ceremonial unclean, which didn't mean you had to commit a grievous sin, uh, daily activities could make you unclean. If you realized that you were unclean, you would have to wash, and that day you shouldn't eat of that celebration, but he should have been there the second day. So dad notices it, but doesn't make a big deal about it, thinks he's probably unclean. The second day he asks his son, well, where's David? Um, Jonathan comes up with this prefabricated story, and the king is furious. Now, I kind of ask the question, or really this comes up many times in the scripture, is it okay to lie? Now, I don't believe that God condones dishonesty. Uh, and sometimes we, you know, even Jesus said to the, his disciples, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Even James, in the book of James, reiterates that. So just be a person of your word, man or woman. However, many times in the scripture, people lied. Right? Abraham lied when he brought uh, Sarah, Pastor Mike covered this in Genesis, into Egypt. You're so beautiful. They're going to kill me if they know that we're married. Say that you're my sister. Um, you know, he was afraid. But God, again, told Abraham as he told David, I'm going to establish a kingdom. I'm going to bring you into the land of Canaan. All this is going to be yours. Your descendants will be like the sands of the sea and, and all these kinds of things. And uh, Abraham lied. David lied. Jonathan went along with the plan. Um, is it possible that David could have come back and sat and, and eaten? And every time Saul tried to throw the spear, it, God put a little English on it, and the thing went, went the other way. It was like a curveball. Every time Saul threw his spear, it always missed David because God promised David something. So they could have, the both of them didn't have to do this. Uh, even if Saul was real close to killing him, God could have had him die of a heart attack because this was a promise that was made. Again, have we, <laughs> under intense pressure and fear, have we maybe lied? Have we um, disbelieved God's promises in the scripture? Maybe they're good for everyone else in the world, but they're not for me, because look at my situation. It's always dangerous when we take our own situation and try to put an explanation that's outside of the scripture, because this has never happened before. In all the years that men and women have been alive, Joe's situation is so different. God's never seen this before. So I don't blame him for not, you know, you start rationalizing things, you're laughing, but people do that because of the stress and emotions. Just trust God. <laughs> Verse 30. So Saul's mad at his son, of course. He doesn't buy the story. Uh, and he insults uh, probably one of his wives, which is uh, Jonathan's mother. And that was one of the biggest insults in that culture that you could do to, uh, and, and you, you, we see it today too, don't we? You know, uh, to say something real awful about a person's mother. So this is what he does. This is what he resorts to. Um, however, what's more important here is that King Saul is fighting against God. Samuel, listen, he respected Samuel. He even tries to conjure him up from the dead later. We'll cover that. And he knows that Samuel has a direct line to God, and he could have that if he wanted to, but he chose not to. Samuel told Saul, listen, the kingdom's not yours anymore. God's taken it from you. 
You know, this is what you've brought on to yourself. Uh, so he, he knows the truth, but he refuses to let it go. Imagine being in a position where God says, that's not for you. I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to do everything I can to try to get it. Let's see what you do. I wouldn't want to be in that position, but that's where King Saul is. Now, let's just look at this. Okay, we're not King Saul. We don't, we're not the king of any country, nobody that I know here, including myself. However, on a lesser scale, is there something that we could be holding on to that God says is not for us? Is there something in our lives that may not be edifying? It may not build up. It, it may be, stand as an impediment for us to mature, and God says, no, that's not for you but we're still hanging on to it. Do we do that as believers? Sure, at times we do. And it's always good to read something like this and reevaluate it because it just causes us more pain. God says it's not for you, it's not good for you. But I want it. We'll see where that gets you. Verse 31. I love it. Um, King Saul uses logic here to his son. He goes, don't you understand, son, that... As long as David is alive, it's not just about me, son. It's about you. This worldly rationalization. Jonathan, you're the prince. You can be the next king. Come on, let's, let's together, you know, I'm just speculating here. Let's go find David. You know, bring him, pretend that it's, everything's okay. We'll both kill him, and you can be the next king. How far would some go for fame, fortune, money, prestige? Here's a situation where Jonathan didn't let that get to him. He didn't let that tempt him. He couldn't even turn a blind eye to the situation. He chose to betray his father because he knew what God's will was here. That's a, that's a, boy, if we could have more people like Jonathan in this world, that would be fantastic. Verse 33, Then Saul cast a spear at him, his own son, to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. That's amazing. It doesn't say that Jonathan was angry because his own flesh and blood father tried to kill him. It said that he was grieved because he knew by the throwing of the spear that his father wanted to kill his best friend. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Not even concerned about his own life and near-death experience. He was concerned about David. In this moment, and we've seen this before in the Old Testament, he was being a type of Christ. He was being someone that emulated what Christ came to do in that moment. Right? I'll tell you what, my, um, my wife can take personal insults, but if somebody tries to insult me or hurt me, boy, I have to say, babe, it's okay, it's okay, it doesn't bother me. She, always, she looks out for me, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and she does the same thing. It doesn't matter personal things that are happening to her, but she'll defend me. I, I don't have one pit bull at home. I have two pit bulls defending me. God bless her. But that's just the way she is. Verse 35. And it was so in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the same time appointed with David. And a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow behind you or beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, carry them into the city. 
This is a heartbreaking account. You could imagine, and I like to put myself in their shoes, you could imagine David hiding in the woods. He's been waiting, waiting. Is Jonathan going to come back? Does he really love me? Did his father, you know, I just like to think like that. And David is just waiting and waiting. Boy, I tell you, the suspense could kill you sometimes, right? When you're waiting for something so important. And then, and then he, hears, he hears rustling, and the lad is there, and, and Jonathan's there, and they set up the target. And he's just, he's just biting his nails, you know, what's going to happen? And then he hears, it's beyond you. Imagine his heart sinking. Oh, he does want to kill me. But at least Jonathan knows now, and, and he's warning me. And, you know, probably in his heart he hoped that it would be a different outcome, but it wasn't. Verse 41. Now, as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. As we can see, they wept. You know, <laughs> you hear all these things. Was it real men don't eat quiche or something like that? Men, <laughs> I love quiche, right? <laughs> men don't cry. Um, this is really neat. You see, I think we have a warped picture of what man should be in our society. It's more of a macho figure where here, good, godly men of the Bible had close relationships. They weren't afraid to say that they loved each other. You know, they, they wept when things happened. Um, it's okay. You know, sometimes it's a catharsis. It's a nice release. Sometimes I just wish I could have a good cry once in a while. <laughs> when, I, when I watch uh, really uh, touching movies, I, what was it, Facing the Giants? I, I started tearing up. That was a great movie, good Christian movie. I'm not afraid to say it. But <laughs> So this is what happens, all right? We, we know the end of the story. Um, what happens here is that Jonathan is in no position anymore to help his good friend David. He's in no position. And he knows that the best thing to do at this point is to let David go. He probably realized that every time he leaves the royal court, that dad's going to send some professional scouts to spy out to see where he, his son is going to find David so they could kill David. So Jonathan realizes he's not an asset to David anymore. He can't be. Um, you know, I, again, I love Jonathan. Here's a guy who, you know, he's still fighting wars. He's still fighting for Israel. He's still uh, trying to protect the, the, the defenseless children of Israel from invaders outside. And he's got this friend that he's trying to protect, and he's doing all these things. But he realizes at this point, he just can't do it anymore. He's got to let David go. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie made of this, but if you have, I would like to see how this is done. It's probably really powerful. A lot of climactic scenes here. Let's just, this is where I'm going to end, briefly. There's some good lessons about friendships here. There's good lessons about loyalties, and there's good lessons about friendships. Let's go almost 3,000 years later to our society. Now, I like to use Facebook for the church. It's like instant message. You can know what the church is doing. I encourage you to get onto the church Facebook account. But... You know, there's this idea that we have to have a thousand Facebook friends, or two thousand, or three thousand. You may look at somebody with three thousand friends and saying that person must be really popular, really. 
Can you really have 3,000 friends? Let's be honest. Unless you're independently wealthy and can do nothing all day but hang out with this friend and that friend and, and put them in time slots, there's no possible way you can fellowship with 3,000 friends. They're not all your friends, you know? You might not even know what they're into, what they're doing. You just see what's on their wall. So friendship is really, a lot of you are smiling. Friendship has really changed over the years, hasn't it? Or the idea of what a friend truly is. So let's look at that. I want to digress for a moment. Friendships evolve. Yes, legitimately, they evolve. Friendships, you may be good friends with somebody, then you may not be good friends. You may have a time of separation. The friendship may become better. It may not be what it was. So friendships are constantly ebbing and flowing. We know that. First of all, we're sinners, and our friends are sinners. So there's going to be, you know, rub accretion, rubbing against each other and, you know, going back to friendship, I'm sorry, you know, will you forgive me? And those are the, the sweeter moments of friendship, but sometimes they're just not the same afterwards. The second point about friendships, again, look in the mirror. I had a friend from high school that uh, was probably one of my biggest long-term friends. For many years, he was my friend. And most of our friendship, we were unbelievers, but part of it, we were believers. And uh, we parted ways, and he didn't want to be my friend anymore. I was very, even as a new believer, I was very immature, and, um, you know, I would blame him for the reason why we weren't friends anymore. But after a while, I, I looked in the mirror, and God showed me something about myself. And what I had to come to realize was I was part of the reason we weren't friends anymore. My wife helped me out with that, too. She goes, remember what you did? Remember this? You know, so, uh, but she was right, and God was right. Uh, I was not the perfect friend that I thought I was. So we may have to look in the mirror sometimes when we look at our relationships. The third point, friendships in ministry and leadership. Good luck. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's tougher as you are in ministry and as you are in leadership. The neediness, the codependency, things like that have to go away because you will hurt someone, period. I will tell you that I've been used I've been used for my position. I've been hurt, um, you know, and I have swore I wouldn't make myself vulnerable, but then I do it again. How do you not love people? People will hurt you. When you open up your heart, they will hurt you, and it will not stop happening, <laughs> right? There's a lot of laughter here. So, so, Jonathan, the best thing for the friendship was to continue Fighting the Lord's battles was to continue to protect the Israelites, was doing everything he could, including um, possibly dying himself because of his father, to uh, minister to his friend. And at one point, he had to let his friend go. David probably strained the relationship a little bit at this point in time, but Jonathan understood that because David was under extreme stress. Again, we will be on the top. And we will have to be a little bit more understanding. We will have to be the better person. People will hurt us, and we have to get over it. Because there will be a time where we're on the bottom, and you're looking for a few good friends to help you out and minister to you. And, and you, you really hope that that happens. We also can learn lessons uh, on trusting God. Again, how many of us could confidently say, well, if I was David, I would have walked into that royal court and said, you know what, Saul, I'm supposed to be the king. Maybe some of us would. Maybe the majority of us wouldn't, because we would be in fear as well. Trusting God is very important, though. I believe that if we truly trust God, 
he will not let us down. That is the standard. Do we always meet that standard? Not always. Last point is that David, for a while, for years probably, was an outcast. He was rejected. In a way, David was also a type of Christ. Just because you now don't have any friends, you're running for your life, you're under stress, you're very unpopular in the kingdom, among your friends, at your job, among your peer groups, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Sometimes those are the times where God ministers to us individually and hones us and sharpens us and builds our character and matures us, you see? So, Jesus also was rejected. He was despised. At the beginning of the last week of his life, everybody was cheering, and it maybe if I could picture Jesus, he probably took it with a grain of salt. Yeah, they'll turn on me. But you know what? He, he loved the people. He ministered to them. And a few days later, they were all shouting, crucify him. And the ones who should have been sticking up for him weren't loud enough. And even as he was walking to the cross, women were crying for him. And he said, ladies, I'm more concerned about you. Beaten up, beard plucked. His eyes probably was like a Rocky movie. He couldn't see out of them because he was beat up so bad. Trying to carry this cross and the women are, are so saddened looking at him, and he's concerned for them. On the cross, he says to his mother, you go into John's house. Probably Joseph was dead by that time. Always looking out for others. So I believe as we go through this and we look at David, we look at Jonathan, in some ways they were both at different points of their life a type of Christ, but ultimately the, the best form of Christ was Christ himself. Let's pray.